Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to Paris and Brussels, look at the latest military updates from Ukraine, and discuss the diplomatic context of the Ukrainian president's meetings with his European counterparts. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 9th of February, day 351. And with me to discuss the latest from Ukraine and across Europe, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes, and former British Army colonel and NATO commander, Hamish de Bretton-Gordon. I started by asking Francis for the latest on Zelensky's European diplomatic mission. Well, thanks, David, and welcome back to our listeners around the world. As you say, quite an extraordinary day yesterday. We left listeners about halfway through it because we just had President Zelensky's speech in Westminster Hall. We learnt afterwards, actually, that he was only the sixth person since 1945 given the honour of addressing MPs and peers in that space. So even more extraordinary, perhaps, than we gave a sense of at the time. But he was just about to meet the King at Buckingham Palace, just a few yards from our office here. And a few minutes after we finished our broadcast, that's exactly what happened. Now, now, what was quite interesting is we got uh, some pictures of that meeting with King Charles III and Zelensky, but also a remark from the king himself, which is quite rare when the monarch meets a foreign dignitary, it tends to be photos only. So I thought that was quite interesting. He said, and I quote, we are all worried about you and thinking of your nation. So that was quite significant, I think. But the bigger news that came out of the second half of the day was all again on this big issue of fighter jets. 
and whether Britain were going to give them and exactly what the nature of those future deliveries would be if and when we do. So there was a major press conference where Rishi Sunak spelled out Britain's new openness to the idea of fighter jets. This was held in Dorset after President Zelensky and Rishi Sunak had met some of the Ukrainian troops who were training there, not far from our very own Hamish de Breton Gordon. And uh, there were lots of photographs from that, too. And I thought, interestingly, from somebody who used to work in politics, Rishi Sunak was uh, photographed in a fighter jet helmet with President Zelensky. And I thought to myself, it seems to me quite unlikely that you would permit a prime minister to be photographed in a fighter jet helmet. Were you not very strongly leaning towards sending fighter jets at some point in the near future because it would be a hostage to fortune. You know, you don't want to leave yourself exposed to being criticised by the Ukrainians in the future for not sending them. So I thought that was interesting. Yes, they were, of course, talking about the training of fighter pilots there, and that's part of it. But I just thought that was quite revealing as to the sense of the tone of the occasion. Prime Minister Sunak said that it was currently with Ben Wallace to decide. Well, Ben Ben Wallace is in Rome with our very own Dom Nichols. And I know that Dom will have lots of coverage on that tomorrow as well as other military matters. But a few interesting quotes from the press conference yesterday, nonetheless. So, as I say, Sunak spelled out this new openness. He said, we've announced today that we will be training the Ukrainian Air Force on NATO standard platforms because the first step is being able to provide advanced aircraft and is to have the soldiers and the aviators who are capable of using them. That is a process that takes some time. We've started that process today. That's because we're keen to support the president and his country in delivering a victory. So that was the sort of end of President Zelensky's visit to Britain. But he then very quickly sped off to Paris. And you may wonder, well, why didn't you talk about that yesterday? Well, it's because we didn't know. And there's even indications that perhaps the French state didn't really get a sense of what was going to happen until very, very last minute. Because, and this has been reported in the Wall Street Journal, that uh, the... There was a lot of diplomatic shenanigans going on uh, behind closed doors where initially there was talks and conversations happening between Kiev and Paris about Zelensky visiting Macron first in order to try and nudge them across the line on this issue of fighter jets before going to Britain. But for whatever reason, conversations from Paris uh, were not forthcoming in a manner that uh, Zelensky was content with and so went to Britain first and caused this rather, I think, embarrassing situation where Britain got all of these plaudits and uh, and it was for a long time looking like France and uh, Germany and others were sort of completely being left out in the cold. So uh, really a sense, I think, that things have been put together very, very quickly. But President Zelensky did make it to Paris. There was a press conference. Uh, Emmanuel Macron gave uh, Zelensky the Legion of Honour. It's the highest award, of course, that a French president can give a, a, a foreign dignitary. Uh, there was then talk of the kind of the normal stuff about uh, France being committed to supporting Ukraine in its victory and its re-establishment of its legal rights. He said, and I quote, Ukraine can count on France, its European partners and its allies to win the war. Russia cannot and must not prevail. 
But what was also interesting was that Olaf Scholz was there. So he flew over from Germany in order to take part in all this. Though one wonders whether that was perhaps the wisest course of action from Macron's perspective, because uh, Mr. Scholz did rather put his foot in it because he started talking about how uh, Germany would not be drawn into a public bidding war over military support for Ukraine ahead of his meeting with Zelensky after the summit. So he said just ahead of the dinner that took place between the three of them, that Germany and its partners had backed Ukraine financially with humanitarian aid and with weapons and would continue to do so for as long as necessary. But, and he goes on, we will not be involved in a public bidding war according to the principle of battle tanks, submarines, battleships and who can offer more. Germany won't get involved in those conversations. And that's what he said, as I say, just before the uh, the, the event with uh, Zelensky and Macron. So um, a little bit embarrassing, I think, because it did slightly taint, I think, some of the dialogue around this uh, meeting between the three leaders. There's been quite a lot of observations about it this morning, as one can imagine. But all of this led up to the big event of today, which is happening as we speak. And Joe Barnes is there. He's going to be speaking on it in a moment, I know, and capturing the mood of it. But uh, Zelensky is now in Brussels. Uh, He's giving a speech as we speak about how Russia, in his view, is seeking to annihilate the European way of life. So very strong words indeed. And saying that Ukraine is defending itself from the most anti-European force of the modern world. We Ukrainians on the battlefield together with you. So Zelensky trying to contextualise this as an existential fight, not only for Ukraine, but for the European Union and perhaps the idea of Europe itself. And of course, that will... I think resonate with many people in uh, in Europe at the moment, um, for right or wrong, um, and so I think it's a successful strategy to adopt. Of course, Zelensky is very, very canny, and how when he gives his speeches, he always makes them personalised to the audience. That's not me saying that they're inauthentic, but I think he just knows which parts of his beliefs and what Ukraine are fighting for to underline and to stress, uh, depending on where he is and who he is speaking to. One other little interesting snippet as well of what he's said is that he believes that his country will join the European Union after emerging victorious from its war with Russia. The after bit is interesting because I think Kiev would ideally like to have seen the European Union offer them some kind of membership, not necessarily full membership, but some kind of membership as symb- in a symbolic gesture whilst the war was going on. But it's now looking like Kiev has have accepted that they will have to wait until the end of the war in order to become members. And I do think it's it's a little bit disingenuous, some of the conversations taking place, uh, taking place around Kiev and Ukraine joining the European Union in the short term because as we spoke about earlier on in the week this is an enormously complicated process Macron himself said it might take more than a decade uh, in order for it to take place there are numerously complicated rules that have to be abided by in order for a country to become a member of the European Union so I do think that when one sees some of these leaders, as has happened today, saying we welcome Zelensky, we welcome Ukraine to the European Union, that it's a little bit more posturing than pragmatism in the sense that they're not actually able to do this. It's more symbolic than anything else. Not that that doesn't matter, but I do think that actually we need to accept the fact that this is going to take a long, long time. And I think it's perhaps, some would argue, a little bit unfair for this constantly being dangled in front of Zelensky when it's not something that's going to be possible in the short term. But Clearly, it's trying to make a a very strong point to Russia and to the wider world that Europe stands firmly behind Zelensky. But as I say, Joe Barnes is there and will no doubt have a lot of thoughts on this. Well, very quickly, thank you, Francis. So, Francis, you've taken us from 
uh, where we kind of where we left off really yesterday in the aftermath of Zelensky's speech to Parliament, all the way up to um, Zelensky's visit to Brussels. Joe Barnes, would you pick up the story there? You're in you're in Brussels, I believe. And what's the atmosphere like? What are you seeing? Hi, folks. Um, hopefully you can all hear me. Yes, I'm in Brussels. I'm in the European Council building where Zelensky has today spoken to EU leaders. I think the main thrust of his speech was, again, he has come to Brussels looking for kind of ammunition, ammunition, ammunition. He spoke of the need for kind of ammo donations as well as artillery, main battle tanks, and then the kind of coveted fighter jets, which we're all speaking so much about, to be accelerated. He he, he is concerned that while Europe is being very generous with its donations to Ukraine, that these donations aren't coming in time for any attempted kind of Russian offensive. And we'll go for it. We'll go for a few of the military kind of updates later. Um, but like what's what's interesting is Zelensky has he's just he's giving a press conference. I just queued up with kind of dozens of kind of starstruck diplomats and other journalists uh, in the press room at the Justice Lipsius of the EU Counts press room. And he has gone in there and he has going to say, I've got a host of bilateral meetings and I'm going to raise with those bilateral meetings the need for fighter jets. Um, Britain was actually quite good on fighter jets. It said, well, it didn't commit to donating fighter jets themselves. It said that we are going to start the process of training them. Europe has been a lot cooler on the possibility of that. Say today, Mark Rutte, the Dutch prime minister, whose foreign ministers previously said there is no taboo on sending aircraft, basically said, look, we can't do anything that would potentially put NATO and Russia at a risk of conflict. The Polish prime minister, Morawiecki, came out and said, look, this is not a decision for the EU. We need to make this in NATO circles and make sure that we're completely aligned inside NATO before we're sending fighter jets. And then he said, look, Poland won't be the one sending fighter jets first because we simply don't have that many. The French, Emmanuel Macron, who Zelensky met last night in Paris and had dinner talks with, he basically said, look, we we weren't discussing fighter jets. So there is a difference between what is being discussed in public and what is being discussed behind closed doors. Zelensky, um, I was speaking to one of his aides yesterday in Brussels as he was preparing the trip, and he basically said Zelensky won't come and make these kind of important overseas trips without knowing there's going to be a deliverable from them. He said when Zelensky went to America, he went to Washington, he did that wanting to achieve and wanting to get the Patriot missile systems, the the air defence systems, over the line. He has travelled to Britain and he has got the first bit of the first part of the jet donations he has got that all-important training package ukrainian fighter pilots on british simulators with british trainers you'd guess um but in brussels he is he has not yet got that deliverable so francis made the point of he went into the european parliament he wanted to speak about how entwined ukraine and the eu are in terms of their, their, their views of western ideals democracy and how Russia is trying to snatch that not only away from Ukraine, but it would, by letting Ukraine lose, the EU is also basically ceding its kind of ground on Western and liberal democracy, on Western values and liberal democracy to Russia. So yeah, that's that's a big point. But as of yet, he's not got that he's not got that kind of cast iron commitment from a European government that they will join this international coalition of fighter jets. And I'll I'll kind of stop there. 
Yes, just very quickly from me, thank you very much for that, Joe. I mean, Francis touched on it a little bit, and it's certainly been written up around some of the British press about how yesterday's visit first to Britain was a bit of a diplomatic coup for the UK. Is that felt much in Brussels? Do you get that sense from the journalists and politicians you're around that, that it's seen like that? Or is it all kind of, you know, in the end, he's, he's seeing all of his allies and it's sort of water under the bridge? What do you make of that? I wouldn't look too much into that, to be fair. I think a lot of people, especially the kind of the level-headed, the calm people who look at look at the war in Ukraine, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, in a rational perspective, they see the fact that Britain was the first to European country to donate weapons when it donated anti-tank weaponry to basically help fuel Ukraine's initial defense against the Russian invasion. And this was this was a, a one of my diplomatic sources put this to me yesterday in, in a text message. It was uh, Zelensky could never show up in Brussels before first acknowledging the role of Britain, the first European country to buttress the Ukrainian resistance. So that's that's it, it's not a shock. And if you, you saw kind of French diplomats yesterday speaking about it, saying it's a good thing that he's gone to Britain, that he's a uh, that he's visiting European countries, they 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 know and they are aware of the fact that Britain was preemptive in its support for Ukraine. It has been at the front of that support. Even if we are slipping behind in terms of monetary values, we are still leading the way when it comes to we were the first Western government to promise a main battle tank in the form of a Challenger Two, which is a net of NATO standard. The Poles, the Czechs, and a few. I believe the Slovaks have, have given, um, from memory, have given kind of Soviet-era tanks, but we were the first to kind of promise one of these Western NATO standards battle tanks to Ukraine. But no, there's not been a lot of un- unrest in, in that. And there's, uh, there's, there's, one, there's one thing I should really mention on this. Zelensky is obviously coming after fighter jets, but he's also pushing one of the messages. He's, he, he, I no doubt he said this to Rishi Sunak, no doubt he's saying this to Ola Schultz last night, and I'm sure he's going to say this to other countries that have promised leopards to the German-made tanks. So Ukraine is, look, you need to hurry this up. We Obviously, we want fighter jets, but we are acutely aware that you've promised us 100 kind of NATO standard main battle tanks and they're yet to arrive in Ukraine. We we really need these. The, the Russian offensive, this kind of well-spoken about new, renewed effort to capture the Donbass uh, in, in its entirety is underway. It's, it's, it's starting, it's getting, it's getting going. And we we are yet to see one of these kind of main NATO standard battle tanks on the battlefield. So that's that's one thing he'll be reiterating that, look, while it's... Uh, and let me just dig out the quote as I sent it over. Zelensky, he gave this address to European Council leader. He said, look, the stronger we are together, the stronger we have, a, have the real European values covering the territory of Ukraine that is now occupied, the stronger we will have European peace. I want to thank you again for understanding us, for supporting us and understanding how much we need the possibilities, how much we need artillery guns, munitions, modern tanks, long range missiles and modern fighter jets. We are grateful to you for giving us this military support, but we have to enhance the dynamics of our cooperation. We have to do it faster than the aggressor is trying to mobilise its own potential. So he's, he's speaking to the fact that, look, we need to continue ramping up military support. So we need to go from main battle tanks to fighter jets. But he's also saying, look, we have to speed up how this is, how quickly this is done, because we have a, a Russian aggressor who is literally willing to pour in probably tens of hundreds of thousands of troops, which it doesn't care about. And, he mentioned that in his European Parliament speech that basically Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin, all they don't they don't care about their, their civilian population. They're they, like they are willing to have them carry weapons to basically ruin the European ideal of and the Western ideals of democracy and liberalism and and so and such. 
So that, that's the kind of message that Zelensky's portraying is: look, we need to we need to fighter jets, but we also need to, you need to come quick on your promises of tanks and other kind of heavily artillery systems and other kind of these light tanks and infantry fighting vehicles that we spoke about a lot in the past. Thank you very much, Joe. What I suggest is I've just got one more quick question for Joe. Then I think we should go to Francis for other diplomatic updates just to just to sort of go from this and then as joe as you mentioned we really do need to go back and talk about some of the military updates and we've got a few things to get through there so just one more question for you joe just going on something i sent you really just a few minutes ago uh, you mentioned the reception for zelensky in the european parliament but it th- th- there's a degree of enthusiasm if we can put it like that from different european leaders what did you make of the video of um zelensky and all the european leaders standing directly he was standing directly in front of victor orban of hungary and uh, who didn't seem to clap is that something is that something worth a mention so obviously the picture is, and to build some context, um, they have what's known as a, a family photo. When the European Council welcomes a foreign dignitary, they will pose for a photo of all 27 EU leaders. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission's president, will be there. Charles Michel, the European Council president, will be there. And there will, I think Joseph Morel, who is the kind of the EU's top foreign diplomat, is also there on the on the sidelines of this picture. But Zelensky was front and centre. And as he walked in and he was taking his place on the podium, every European leader was very much clapping, smiling, and basically looking forward to welcoming welcoming him to Brussels and having these conversations with him. But there was a notable, in this this one little video clip, notable outcast of uh, Viktor Orban, the Hungarian Prime Minister, who was not applauding. And Viktor Orban has, over the over the over the past year has been singled out for criticism by Zelensky himself and by Zelensky's kind of main European allies because he has refused to sign off on certain sanctions packages. He has watered down certain sanctions packages. He has said that look, we will not let weapons pass through Hungarian territory into Ukraine. And he he Victor Orban is perceived as one of kind of the Kremlin's most uh, closest allies inside the European yes. Union. So he he wasn't applauding, but it's it's hard to tell. He's he's got kind of a checkered history in supporting Ukraine, but Hungary has come a long way since the start of the invasion, the full the full scale invasion, and it has slowly kind of let more and more through when it's the EU tried to do sanctions. It's used um, on signing off packages of of military kind of support. The EU doesn't actually give weapons itself, but it it has it has pledged I think three billion euros to reimburse EU member states on the weapons they have given to Ukraine. So it's trying to, so Hungary hasn't blocked anything, but it has constantly sought to kind of water down. So yeah, there, there, there is a possible, a little kind of fraught relationship between Hungary and Ukraine. And maybe that's why Viktor Orban hasn't applauded on this on this case. No, that's really interesting. Thank you, Joe. I thought that was really good extra detail and context. I think we need just to, just to interpret that clip, which is currently sort of doing the rounds on Twitter and going a little viral. Let's zoom out to Brussels then. There is a few other diplomatic updates that are important to mention. Francis, can you talk us through them? Well, thanks, David. I just wanted to pick up on some of the reaction in the past 24 hours from other European leaders of of seeing Zelensky speak in Britain and now, of course, in Brussels. I was quite struck by the remarks of Giorgio Maloney, the Italian prime minister, who said that the invitation of Zelensky to Paris was inappropriate. So she said, and I quote, I believe our strength is community and unity, but there are times when favouring internal public opinion risks being to the detriment of the cause. And this seems to me to be one of those causes. Now, that's interesting. And I think what she's trying to get out here is that it shouldn't be within the European Union. Of course, Britain is not part of the European Union. It's important to contextualise that here, that within the European Union, there's a feeling that the stance on Ukraine needs to be consistent, that there needs to be a sense of everybody moving in the same way 
way or as much as possible amongst leading powers, whether it be Germany, France or Italy. And this sense of Macron perhaps trying to get ahead of the game and have his photo op with Zelensky is something that personally for for Italy it feels is not the right or best course of action. So that was quite interesting. In a slightly different angle, but on a similar theme, uh, the Estonian Prime Minister, Katja Kallas, has said that she emphasises the importance of jointly buying arms and ammunition for Ukraine. So again, emphasising this line that whatever is agreed needs to happen in a collective way, as opposed to independent nations doing independent things. So again, just quite an interesting remark, I think, which reveals the tensions within the European alliance at the moment as to the best way to proceed. The Dutch have said that they're not ruling out any kind of military support for Ukraine. So in the context of the fighter jets conversation we were just happening, that's very interesting. And in terms of other news in the diplomatic space, just a couple of other things I wanted to draw attention to. Poland is to close its key border crossing with Belarus until further notice. That's according to the Polish Interior Minister. They've said that the tense relations between Warsaw and Minsk have sunk to a new low. And according to Poland, due to the important interest of state security, I decided to suspend until further notice from 12 o'clock on February 10th this year traffic at the Polish-Belarusian border crossing. And... You can imagine some of the reaction that there's been to this. People saying that this is a you know, tantamount to diplomatic isolation for Belarus, if you're a pro-Belarusian voice. But it does speak, I think, to a theme we've returned to again and again on the podcast, which is this issue of Belarus and their role in the war and what they could they could be doing in the next phase. The most concern, the biggest concern, of course, is they'll be used as a staging post for another attack on Kiev in this new Russian offensive. So... This would speak to that. I think that there's concerns clearly that weapons may be being transported or that people are being going across the Polish border that is not necessarily uh, it being conducted in a way that is perhaps uh, legal or at the very least is not conducive to the kind of approach to the Ukraine that Poland wants to see. And of course, they're one of Poland, um, one of Ukraine's, forgive me, uh, earnest supporters. Just another couple of things which are connected Um In all of the excitement of yesterday, I wasn't able to talk about this, but really interesting. So we've touched on MH17, of course, the Malaysian Airlines flight that was shot down with a Russian missile in 2014. And yesterday it was confirmed that an international team of investigators have found strong indications that President Putin himself approved the supply of heavy anti-aircraft weapons to the Ukrainian separatists who shot down that plane. Now, of course, 298 people were killed as a consequence of that. It was a pretty significant diplomatic instance at the time, though I wonder in retrospect whether it should have been a much bigger one, because of course it was indicative of the direction of travel in Ukraine, which is now unfortunately we're seeing play out before us in its most virulent and violent form, horrifically. And um, uh, the the remarks, I say, are very strong. So the Dutch prosecutors have said, there are strong indications that Putin decided on supplying these weapons. Although we speak of strong indications, the high bar of complete and conclusive evidence is not reached, but the investigation has now reached its limit. All leads have been exhausted, which of course is unsurprising given the fact that probably the only people who'd be able to, or the only way of confirming that would be to be going through the Russian state archives which somehow I think isn't going to be possible for many, many years uh, to come. I mean, my goodness, there's there's numerous Soviet archives we've still not got complete access to uh, from those years so I, I goodness knows how long his fellow historians will have to wait in order to get access to the ones from this period. But anyway, I thought that was quite 
interesting um, because, of course, there is a broader conversation happening at the moment about the legal complicity of Putin and the people at the top of the regime. And I was also struck yesterday, very, very easy to miss this in all of the excitement. But Rishi Sunak, Prime Minister, did say that he was hopeful of seeing the first international criminal court indictments linked to Russia's invasion very shortly. He was supported by this by the leader of the opposition, Sakir Starmer, who said that uh, or he'd, uh, he'd asked Rishi Sunak whether he agreed that Putin and all of his cronies must stand at The Hague and face justice. And then the prime minister replied, he's absolutely right that we must hold those to account for the horrific crimes that they have committed. I'm proud that the UK has played again a leadership role in this regard as being one of the first countries to provide financial and technical support, putting investigators on the ground and will shortly be hosting a conference together with the Dutch. And he says that he then also uh, plan to have conversations with President Zelensky around this. Now, I know it's not the most um, interesting of subjects for some, these kind of legal questions, but actually this really, really matters for all of the reasons we've talked about in the past, that it's one thing to, to be fighting the, the war now, but it's, it's going to be equally as important in the future to hold to account the people who've been responsible for some of the heinous crimes that we've seen committed in Ukraine and beyond. And so these kind of incidents, it has to happen now. It can't wait because evidence is lost, testimony is lost, people uh, are killed, people are deposed, all these sorts of things can happen. And so it's vital the evidence is attained now. And as I say, Britain and the Dutch are particularly leading on this. And so I think it's right to draw attention to whenever there is an update in this space, David. Thank you very much, Francis. Joe, can I just come back to you quickly for a couple of updates and thoughts before we talk about the military updates, which we do need to get onto. But uh, Francis touched on diplomatic developments in, in Italy, and you want to give a little more context on that. Yeah, so um, I'll start with the Italian context. And so we've got to cast our, our, our minds back to the time that Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, made his first visit to Kiev. He went on the train with Emmanuel Macron and Mario Draghi, the former Italian Prime Minister, who is seen, he's a former head of the European Central Bank. He's seen as a staunch European. He bought a slightly wavering Eurosceptic Italy during the COVID crisis back really into the the European sphere of influence. Um, he was part of that little kind of, there was that trilateral group of European leaders that went to see Zelensky at the heart of the EU. Maloney wasn't invited yesterday, as far as we know. So there is going to be some angst about that because she is now seen as, she is a kind of Eurosceptic, a conservative thinking leader. And she has been cast aside and basically forgotten from this kind of great trio of European leaders that went to see Zelensky. But then you also have to then boil it down is today is a European Council summit. Obviously they are they're they're meeting Zelensky, they're seeing Zelensky, they're having conversations with him, they've heard from him. But there are other issues on the table. And one of the main issues is the issue of migration into the EU. And Italy sees itself as the forefront on that kind of southern flank of migration when it comes to the Mediterranean. And it has a harder line on migration than France does. And so this is so Maloney is going to seek to use any little kind of room for manoeuvre, any tiny bit of leverage that she can to kind of extort compromises out of her other European counterparts, her colleagues, especially Emmanuel Macron on migration. And that's probably why she she really took had a dig at Macron and poured punches about not being invited to Paris. And then I just want to um, touch on a few things that President Zelensky has said in a press conference that is currently live in the European Council building while we're on air here on Twitter. Um, 
Zelensky made a comment and some reference to his visit to London. He said this visit achieved results. And he said, look, training is an important step in the road to getting jets. And there are a number of agreements that have been made but are not public yet. And then he's speaking of his meeting in Brussels. He said, look, this meeting has been a positive one. I do not want to announce many things publicly, but we've been talking about tanks and I've received a positive impression. So we can only think that Zelensky has been promised that kind of upgraded, accelerated timeline for getting Western tanks into Ukraine. And he also went on to say that he has heard from a number of European leaders about the readiness to give the necessary weapons and support, and that includes aircraft. So it looks like there have been some warm words behind the scenes for Zelensky on fighter jets or other sort of combat aircraft, despite the mood in public being slightly colder on that. And then um, I will stop there and I guess I can go into some military updates if no one has any objections. And Absolutely. Thank you. Well, very quickly. Please shout at me, David, if you want me to stop. <laughs> Thank you very much, Joe. I'd just say, well done for following this live press conference and calling in and giving us your thoughts. It's absolutely copy perfect. I mean, that, that is... Gosh, I didn't, I didn't realise you were covering both things at the same time, so thank you so much for joining us. And of course, listeners, if you want to read The Telegraph's reporting and Joe's reporting live, not only is he talking to us, he's also feeding quotes and thoughts to the, to the Telegraph's live blog. You'll be able to find that on the website, so do go there today, and I'm sure, Joe, you'll have some pieces up later as well. So th- thank you. I mean, congratulations on your ambidextrous reporting there. But yes, Joe, you mentioned earlier about the context of, of this diplomatic mission and of the of Zelensky's wish for tanks and for, for, for warplanes and, and uh, more support is the incoming and something already started next Russian offensive in the east in Donbass. We've heard a few updates from British military intelligence and the Institute for the Study of War also put out an interesting piece of analysis that I think would be good to touch on. Joe, you've looked at this. Can you talk us through some of the military updates from Ukraine? Yeah, let's, so let's, uh, let's start with the Institute for the Study of War. They're a US-based think tank and they, they put out this kind of daily report on what they see on the front lines, but also diplomatically. And in, in the report that was issued late last night, so it's it's today's if we're for the British listeners, and they've reported that Russian forces have regained the initiative in the Luhansk region, which is one half of the Donbass, in a shift that could suggest Moscow has actually started its renewed offensive attempts. And for some context around that, Ukraine have been warning for quite some time now that the Russians are planning something symbolic, something big, potentially an effort to capture the entire Donbass, maybe some of the southern Zaporizhia area, in time for the one-year anniversary on February the 24th. And so the Institute of the Study of War goes on to note that multiple sources are picked up on increased Russian activity on the Savatov and Kremina line in the west of the Luhansk region. It appears that Russian military commanders have committed several conventional divisions of fighters to carry out decisive offensive operations along that line. And they've They've noted activity from elements of Russia's 144th and 3rd Motor Rifle Divisions, a regiment of the 90th Tank Division, which is, uh, if I remember correctly, one of Moscow's prestigious kind of tank divisions. It's there designed to defend Moscow from a what it perceives as a NATO invasion. And there was also some airborne elements from the 76th Airborne Division. And you, what I, I think what you've got to look at here is these elements, these kind of members of the Russian armed forces that are being sent in are a far kind of flung 
they're far more advanced than anything that we've seen from the Wagner group, which have been mainly made up of conflict, uh, convicts, sorry, and murderers, kind of rapists, that are being freed from prison to take and to fight in Ukraine. And they've they've been trying to take back for months without any sort of effectiveness. They've they've been they've maybe tens or maybe hundreds of meters of progress every week, despite throwing vast resources at them. So this is actually what looks like to be quite a significant build-up of Russian activity using well-equipped, well-trained and conventional warfare rather than sort of a paramilitary, a group of gang of guns for hire who aren't as well-trained or equipped. So this that's one to look out for because it's definitely something the Ukrainians have been warning about and it's something that we, we expect to kind of pick up in the future. Then Britain's Ministry of Defence and its daily intelligence briefing has raised the issue of weather and talks about kind of Ukraine's famous muds and the muddy season. Um, you'd have heard Roland on a fan. He's a big fan of this. He's written on it a lot before, and he often speaks about how the muddy conditions in Ukraine between cold weather spats, cold weather spates and stuff like that, kind of affects the war zone and the battlefield. And so the MOD has said the weather continues to play a significant role in Russia's war in Ukraine. It said the frozen ground there has has been a likely has caused likely little change to Russia's cross-country mobility in eastern Ukraine and in the Donbass in weeks. And they say, according to the MOD, the surface temperatures have been around zero degrees Celsius, but they will likely rise in the coming weeks, meaning the ice and snow that have kind of littered the, the battle, the battlefield for a, a few months now will, will melt, it will turn into a boggy, it will make the ground boggy, and it will basically reduce Russia's ability to move and maneuver across the battlefield because it, tanks will get bogged down vehicles will be bogged down the trenches there will be absolutely kind of there will be kind of boggy messes and it would mean soldiers won't be able to maneuver as easily so that's that's one thing that kind of it, it could play into the hands obviously this it affects ukraine equally but it could play into the hands and actually slow down any kind of russian renewed offensive and then the other one i wanted to touch on is the Ministry of Defence, and sorry, I'm just bringing up my notes on this because I've somehow managed to close this, is they have spoken about some recent skirmishes around the Dnipro Delta. This is the kind of the body of water at the kind of the start of the River Dnipro, and it's near, it's where Kherson is based. It is essentially, it helps control the whole waterway running into Ukraine, into central Ukraine. And so Britain's uh, military intelligence notes that since Russia withdrew its forces from the West Bank of the Dnipro in November, that's Kherson for the UNI, um, skirmishing and reconnaissance has continued on the complex network of islands and waterways which make up the Dnipro Delta. Russian forces have almost certainly used small boats to try and maintain a presence on key islands. Ukraine has successfully deployed long-range artillery to neutralise Russian outposts a number of times. Both sides have likely also deployed small groups on the Kinburn Spit, which is a kind of a, a sandy nature park right at the tip of the Dnipro Delta. And as Britain's military intelligence says, it commands the Del Dnipro Gulf. And so both sides are likely aiming to maintain a presence in these areas to control maritime access and strategic to this strategically important river and to provide a warning to any attempt by their adversaries to launch a major assault across the river. It is highly unlikely that Russia will attempt any assault across it because it would likely be extremely complex and costly. And I think one of the um, 
essential feelings is whoever controls the Zipro Delta also kind of controls the shipping in and out of Odessa in southern Ukraine, and that plays a major part. So Ukraine are definitely, obviously, massively keen on keeping a kind of a, a stranglehold on this and stopping Russia being dominant because they know it plays into the fact of them getting their millions of billions of tons of grain out. That's one of their key sort of elements that they are using to fund their own resistance effort and to feed kind of the world. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Joe. That was very comprehensive. We're just going to try and get Hamish de Breton Gordon, former NATO commander and writer for The Telegraph, on, just because I think this issue of Russian initiative uh, is an interesting one to explore. I'd like to like to explore what this actually means in a military sense, if, if, it, if it's true, as the Institute of the Study of War think that the Russian side might have done this in Donbass. We're just going to try and get Hamish on for that. But just very quickly, Joe, before that... Um, You've, you've, you and Francis have both covered what it me- what Zelensky's been doing in Brussels. What's next? What, what's what's for the rest the rest of the day look like for you? And then we'll go to Hamish. So the rest of the day is Zelensky is basically here. He's just finished his press conference. Charles Michel, the European Council President, has actually just walked past me. I've kind of put myself in a little enclave uh, via his route back to his office. EU leaders will obviously continue their conversations. But what's I think the important thing to look out to is now Zelensky is going to go off, and he's got about two hours of bilateral meetings with EU leaders. He'll probably catch up with Macron, he'll catch up with Schultz, he'll catch up with all the other leaders and he will try and convince them to send fighter jets and speed up deliveries of tanks and artillery weapons and stuff Ukraine needs to repel the Russian invasion and kind of push Russia out finally. And then I presume obviously details of his kind of movements are kept very secret for security reasons, but then I presume that he will fly back to Poland and then he will make his way back into Ukraine where he will take up take up base and help run the country once again because so what's what was interesting speaking to one of his aides yesterday he he doesn't make these trips abroad lightly he um, as I mentioned earlier he made significant play on he only went to the US because he knew that he would get Patriot missiles he went to the UK because he knew that he, he knew that he would get some sort of offering on fighter jets he is also told, like, he's close confidence that he can't, he knows this window for kind of leaving Ukraine is closing because he knows the battle is going to get tough again. He knows Russia is launching this renewed offensive and he won't leave Ukraine while times are tough for his, for his kind of guys and girls in the armed forces on the front line. So this is probably his final kind of foreign jaunt for a while. So he's going to make the most of it, try and get as much out of his European allies as possible to help his armed forces counter any Russian offensive and then potentially launch their own counter-offensive. But I'll, I'll, I'll step aside for Hamish. To- thank you very much, Joe. So yes, Hamish to Breton Gordon, thank you so much for jumping on. It's just I saw you were listening and thought, well, we're talking about you know military um, words and concepts. And I wanted to ask you to come in on this idea from the Institute for the Study of War, who've written that they believe that Russian forces have, quote, regained the initiative in Ukraine and have begun their next major offensive in Luhansk Oblast. From a military perspective, what what does that mean, initiative? What does that mean, what does that mean for the war and, and for the next few weeks? Well, good afternoon and a great pleasure to be on again. I think most significantly they're talking about these three divisions, tank division, motor rifle division, and also airborne division that seem to be on the move. I mean, th- these are, are probably the most capable forces that they have in the region, combined arms, potentially able to do combined arms manoeuvre. So hitherto, we've been discussing a very, very static environment, sort of First World War type trench activity, whereas these three divisions are 
you know, in Western parlance, what we would use for combined arms manoeuvre to try and rather than just slug it out toe to toe, you know, across a trench, be able to move tanks supported by armoured infantry and artillery. And I think it's as far as regaining the initiative, I think it's, it's probably a perceptional thing that perhaps the Russians now think that their offensive has started and they're on the foot front foot so they i think they have the potential to gain the initiative um all the reporting so far is that any gains are still fairly small and i'm sure the fact that we're hearing so little from the ukrainian side you know th- this hasn't been gone going unnoticed and i'm sure a lot will be doing a lot of activity will be taking place so that any Uh, ingress or advance can be cut off but significant that probably the three most capable divisions that the russians have available we don't know you know quite how full they are of of manpower and tanks but the russians are signifying that perhaps the offensive has begun or perhaps they're just trying to maneuver into a position for a more sort of high profile punch around the 24th of, of february but a slight transition from very static, potentially a bit mobile, but no great gains, certainly that I've seen. I don't know if anybody else has associated with this potential advance. That's very interesting. Thank you, Hamish. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I just wondering from your perspective as a as a military man, how, wor- how worried do you think the rest of us should be about this? I mean, it struck me that that phrase, regain the initiative, seems seems like a big one. And you're suggesting, you know, maybe, maybe not. It's too early to tell. Is that the right way to, to read it? Well, I think so. There's been a lot of talk over the last 24 hours and you know, other commentators are saying, you know, are, are we at an absolutely critical point? Could certainly, suddenly we see the sort of floodgates open in the east and these uh, Russian armoured divisions, you know, pour through and start to head west at a great speed? You know, I, I, I don't really see that. And again, you know, certainly information and intelligence coming out of Western capitals and also out of Kiev, is is not indicating that so it's probably you know, there is probably more disinformation and propaganda coming out around this from russian bots and sites than perhaps you, you know what is actually happening i think the events of yesterday and today with zelensky around london and capitals appearing to be promised you know heavy and sophisticated weaponry has got the Russians rattled. So in a, in a, in a way, this might be uh, them trying to indicate, hey, you know, you might be getting a few jets and a few tanks, but look, you know, we've got three very powerful divisions that are just about to get on the move. But I, you know, I haven't seen anything in the last few days or actually the last few months that would suggest that these Russians can actually manoeuvre with three divisions to make a strategic impact into Ukraine. And I really hope I'm right. Well, thank you very much, Hamish. And thank you very much for for joining us. I know it was a bit on the hoof there, but I did sort of see some of the reporting that Joe was was talking to us about and thought, I'd be really, it would be be good if we could just get Hamish on to talk to us about that. So thank you so much for for jumping on uh, so quickly and and, uh, apologies for being so on the hoof with that. So thank you, Hamish. We're starting to come to the end of our time, I think, together. Francis and Joe, is there anything more you'd like to talk to us about before we go to our final thoughts? Yeah, can I just jump in on Andre Yermak? He is um, he's an interesting character for the idea that he is um, President Zelensky's kind of head of cabinet, his like main top advisor, chief of staff, let's call him. 
But he has he has put out a on Telegram a message which has now been edited. And he said the issue of long range weapons and fighter jets for Ukraine seems like it can be resolved. Um, and he, it, but he had a previous version which said it has been resolved. So I, I, I think President Zelensky behind the scenes has probably been given some warm words on the idea that Ukraine could be given weapons that fire longer than the kind of the 50 mile HIMAR and the Gimla system. And actually, probably some warm words on maybe other countries joining the UK on training Ukrainian fighter pilots. Um, it might not be gifting jets straight away, but, but actually bringing. Ukrainian fighter pilots up to kind of a NATO standard for a time and place for long-term military support. And we're talking kind of almost post-war as well, because post-war is a critical part of security guarantees for Ukraine, especially if Russia will always remain on its doorstep. So I think I think we're going to see some movement. And he says there's, there'll be some more news later on that. So I think I will be looking out. And after I leave you, I might grab a spot of lunch because it's uh, three o'clock almost in Brussels and I'm quite hungry. But then I'll be delving in and speaking to my diplomatic contacts, trying to find out what their presidents and prime ministers told told Zelensky. So let's let's wait there. Cause it seems quite an interesting revelation. And I'll stop there and let Francis go with his final thoughts. Well, thank you very much, Joe Barnes. Francis Turnley. Thanks, Joe. I hope you get a good lunch, a baguette of some kind. Uh, Hamish, I, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. And I should say to listeners that uh, Hamish and I had a really good chat last night and he's very kindly written a piece for us, which will be going out live later on, about the inevitability, it seems, of fighter jets going to Ukraine at some point, whether they just be from Britain or from others. So I'd highly recommend that listeners do check that out. It'll probably be up in the next couple of hours or so. I wanted to end, though, with another story that would be easy to miss but is extremely significant and perhaps the most important we'll we'll cover today which is that Ukraine's use of SpaceX's satellite internet system, this is of course Elon Musk's company, has been restricted amid claims that Kiev have been using the technology for offensive purposes. Now SpaceX, we've talked about Starlink now several times since we started the podcast but I think it's so important to use this opportunity to talk about its significance there was a really interesting deep dive in the times about a month or so ago which said and I mean it's extremely uh, punchy but it's citing a lot of very informed people in saying this it says no one perhaps besides Zelensky has played a greater role in helping to defend Ukraine than Elon Musk due to the Starlink program and it talks uh, cites several professors and ex military experts saying military experts I talk to are in awe of Starlink it is more resilient as a communication system than some of the hardened ones they use in the military. Starlink has an intrinsic resilience to jamming using a wide swathe of frequencies with eight channels. Messaging ordering the hopping are encrypted. This makes it vitally important for military use. And so the pausing and the restricting of the use of Starlink by the Kiev military, I think is, is a concerning moment for many and those who are in the know this morning have been commenting on this and saying you know this is the story and I think the problem is is that of course that many people who are following the war are, are distracted by what's going on uh, with with Zelensky's speeches and us, ourselves amongst them um, but actually this this really does have big implications because it's being used on a daily basis by the Ukrainian military they're using it for comms as well as 
apparently for these uh, offensive purposes. And any limiting on that will overnight have a direct impact on how the Ukrainian army are able to do certain things. Now, I should say that they've not been, I don't get a sense that the Ukrainian army is panicking as a consequence of this. But if it's true, and I say if it's true, that Starlink is as integral as some investigations and deep dives have been saying, then this is a concerning moment and something that I think we will want to be following in the coming days because it is it is a concern and it does, of course, play into the broader narratives that surround uh, everything involving Elon Musk, which is his slightly uh, erratic behaviour at times and his remarks on Ukraine in the past have been controversial, I suppose, to say the least. Uh, he's, of course, talked about the need to hold a referenda in, uh, after the war in certain territories in Ukraine um, in order to try and find a solution. He's talked about the dangers of escalation, all of these things, which mean that some people think that whilst, of course, he's been providing this absolutely essential service of the internet that's being used not only by the army, but for ordinary people in Ukraine, that he could pull the plug at any moment. And so there is an anxiety here. And I think that there'll be some very high level conversations happening in America at the moment, because I understand that some of the funding for Starlink is being fabled by the American government that, uh, that about continuing this, because, of course, if it is actually going to be hampering the Ukrainian armed forces, and that's a, a major cause for concern just prior to this Russian offensive. So uh, one that we will be watching, David. Thank you very much, Francis. Yes, that's such a that's such an important story. It's a really good point. And I believe we should have uh, the Telegraph's technology reporter. I think I've got his title wrong, but he's in some sense, a tech reporter, Gareth Caulfield, on tomorrow with Dom Nichols. So I'll definitely ask him if he can talk more about this because he'll he'll have a really good sense of, as, as you've said, the importance and some of the background. Um, but thank you very much, Francis. It's a very, very good point, that. Um, thank you, Joe. Thank you, Francis. Hamish, thank you so much for jumping on. Do you have a final thought for us? Um, yes, if I can, ju- just one. And uh, um, Francis mentioned the piece that we discussed and have written um, about aircraft going to Ukraine. Uh, And it's very pertinent to what we're talking about at the moment and the potential initiative of the Russian forces on the ground. Um, To me, jets show longevity of the West supporting the Ukraine in this conflict. The Russians want to draw out the conflict as long as possible to break the will of the West to keep supporting. And What we're seeing at the moment uh, with the potential of these three divisions on the move is just an elongation of this conflict. So I accept British jets, if they get there, they're not going to get there for 12 months or so. But hopefully it reinforces to the Ukrainians and to the Russians that the West is in this for the long haul and we're not going to cast Ukraine adrift. Uh, We're going to make sure that they see this to the end. Over. Thank you very much. Hamish, um, just out of interest, Hamish, you mentioned yesterday um, hearing the Ukrainians train on Salisbury Plain. Have you been hearing much today? Yeah, abso- absolutely. Um, out of my back window, as we, which is onto Salisbury Plain. Yeah, there are AS-90s, 155s uh, firing today, firing late into the night last night. It was a bit quieter to the south towards Bobbington and Lulworth, uh, where uh, Zelensky and uh, our own prime minister were ho- holding that conference um, but I'm expecting uh, certainly this afternoon um, to hear some Challenge 2 firing as well. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. 
you can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells, Giles Gear, and Chelsea Henshaw. And today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.